Well, I want to reiterate uh, what was extended to you by Julia, and that is a word of greeting. Uh, for those of you who have not had a chance to meet, my name is Eric, and I have the privilege to pastor here at Grace Church, and I'm glad for us to gather together to worship the Lord. Uh, thankful for the opportunity to do so through the continued uh, teaching and leading of His Word, which is what we intend to do now together. I want to start off tonight by asking you a question. What are you afraid of? What scares you? When I ask you that question, and as you think about it, as you sit there and hear the question, I imagine there's a, a number of answers that are going through your heads. For some of you, if I say, what are you afraid of? Uh, if you're like my wife, you think of one word and one word only. Cockroaches. She's scared to death of cockroaches. Thinks of them as little demons walking across the ground. Others of you, maybe a little bit more serious in reflection, might think, oh, I'm scared of a burglar. Uh, maybe having heard of that happening or maybe having experienced that before, somebody who's going to break in your house and steal your possessions, that maybe is a fear of yours that you would think about. Fear is common to us, and it's not necessarily sinful of us. But I will say this, fear is a result of sin. Before the fall of man, the beginning of time in the book of Genesis, before that tragic event that took place in Genesis 3, there was no fear. Unless we understand it to be a fear of God and a reverence of God, but there was no fear of circumstances, fear of death, fear of broken relationships, fear of crime, fear of sickness, fear of loss. None of that ever existed. When we think about fear, in some sense it seems natural, right? I mean, a, there's a natural reaction when, when the body fears some imminent threat or some soon arriving danger, the body reacts in fear. It's a protective mechanism. We should act and react to that potential threat. But ever since sin entered the human nature, it's been impossible to shake off fear. I mean, think about it like this. In Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam do once he sinned? He hid. He hid. And his relationship and every relationship thereafter, completely different from God than what it was before that sin. But while I think it's understandable that we understand the concept of fear, I think it's usually often thought of in regards to danger. But I'm here tonight to submit to you that there are more layers to think about when it comes to reflecting on fear that perhaps many of us are not aware of unless we stop and ask ourselves some heart-searching questions. Let me give you some to just hear and think about. What influences your decisions? What comes up most in your prayers as a matter of concern? to be polite, maybe more anxious, worried, or fearful, to be honest. What do you think about the most? Fear is much more common than I think most of us are aware of. Some people fear singleness. What if I will be single my whole life? Some people fear marriage. What if I make a mistake and say yes to the wrong person and then I'm stuck with them? Others fear their spouse, once they are married, cheating on them. 
What if my spouse is unfaithful? What if we divorce? What if I'm alone after having been married? Others fear parenting. What if I don't like being a parent if I have a child? What if I do like being a parent, but I'm bad at it? I'm a bad parent. Others fear a shorter lifespan than they had always wanted or wished for or financially planned for. What if I die earlier than I had intended? Others fear unemployment. How will I pay for my rent or my mortgage or provide for my family if I lose my job? Others fear their family. What if I don't choose a career, a job that makes my parents proud of me? Or what if I don't get married when they wanted me to? Or what if I don't have the number of grandkids or any grandkids that they're expecting? Others fear what others think of them. What if they learned that I only made so much money? That the car that I'm driving I really cannot afford. But I just bought it because I wanted people to think of me as something more than I am. Or what if people learn I don't like certain food? And that's why I often say no to their invites to their house. What if they learn that I don't do certain things that they think are cool and that I really want to do? What if they learn that the way that I make my decisions, or maybe they learn I've made some bad decisions before they've ever known me, some things that I'm ashamed about? This level of fear that one is experiencing in life is in direct relationship to the perceived threat. Oftentimes we fear other people because their view of us are losing that view we hold in such great view, such great regard. I don't want them to think less of me, so my, the, my thought about their view of me is in great importance, and I want to keep it that way. When fear is exceedingly great and becomes overwhelming, we often lose discernment clear thinking. We're not, we're not being rational anymore. We're just sort of driving based on fearful impulse. I mean, just think about that last example I gave about fearing what others think of them. It's amazing to me that it's not often the burglar that we fear the most. It's just other people's opinion. Other people's opinion. Uh, last week, my, uh, one of my sons and I were at Art Basel here in Miami, and uh, we're at a place in Miami that we enjoyed seeing a number of exhibits, and uh, we had arrived before the crowd kind of grew thick, and by the time we were there, towards the time we were leaving, about five hours later, just, just a thick crowd. And I just commented to my son how I felt bad for so many people that so much of what they do, so much of what they wear, so much of how they talk, so much of this sense of humor they use, so much of what they buy, so much of what they're committed to trying to become is to impress the people around them. It's to secure their affirmation of them. It's to guarantee their acceptance by them. It's to make sure that they have the love from them. And they just make themselves slaves to everybody else's opinion of them what the Bible refers to as a fear of man. So fear can be global, what will happen to this planet in light of how things are happening ecologically. It can be possessive in regards to our own personal safety, what will happen if someone breaks into my house, or it can be relational. What do you even think of me right now as I'm preaching this sermon? Good sermon? Bad sermon? 
It's amazing how common fear can be. Well, my hope tonight is for this to be a place at this time where you will have a little rest from your fears so that we can think biblically from God's word. Because I want to bring to you God's word that you might think with me. Now, for those of you who are just joining us and have not been with us the previous two weeks, we're right in the middle of a four-part series on the implications of the incarnation. In other words, we're taking what is a familiar story for a lot of people, the story of this baby in a manger, which is not terribly offensive to the world. It seems quite cute and adorable, if not misunderstood. But not as offensive as a cross where someone is making payment for sins. But what we're talking about is the beginning of the life of Christ in his incarnation. Why does that story matter so much, even the details of our lives today? The previous couple of weeks, we looked at areas like pride and how common it is to our fallen human condition. Uh, Last week, we looked at doubt and, again, how common this is for people like you and people like me and how much we can doubt Tonight we're looking at the topic of fear, and next week our final installment will be on the topic of despair or hopelessness. Now let me just tell you where we're headed tonight so you kind of know where we're headed as a bit of a roadmap. First of all, I want to talk to you more about fear. Secondly, I want to talk to you about God's solution to your fear. And then third, I want to show you how Jesus' first coming ultimately illustrated that solution. So first of all, let's learn a little bit more about fear. Now, Last week, I talked about the topic of doubt. Doubt is like a first cousin to fear. They're not the same, but they're related, right? I mean, you, you know this in your families. If you, some of you have like really big families and you get together for families, the, the first cousins, you kind of know well. The second cousins, the third cousins, you're like, somehow I'm related. In Miami, everybody's a cousin somehow. But the first cousin... I mean, there's a clear connection, right? There's a shared grandparents' lineage there. There can even be some sort of similar appearance in how they look. You know, similar height, some kind of body type because of sort of where you can kind of track it from. So is it similar as well with fear. Fear and doubt are cousins. They are related. There are other ways we sometimes have people talk about fear. Sometimes we use words like, I'm anxious. I'm worried. Or the more cleaned up word that I, that I appreciate is, um, I'm concerned. Concerned sometimes can be like that mask word, like we use like frustrated. How many of you ever use the word frustrated? Raise your hand. Okay, I have. Yeah, frustrated. Oftentimes we use the word frustrated. It's just like a polite way of saying, I'm really angry. I'm very impatient. And I'm greatly bothered and uh, unappreciative for what's happening right now. I am frustrated. But we don't come out and say, I'm really angry, because that would kind of expose us, what's going on. We're like, oh, I'm frustrated. Like, oh, we shouldn't be so frustrated. So it's like sometimes with the word concerned. Now, I'm not saying it's inherently wrong, but I'm saying it oftentimes becomes a mask of a bigger issue. Anxiety and fear and worry. Fear, as I've said, is natural to us. We don't have to learn it. We experience fear and anxiety even before there is any logical reason for it. Have you thought about this with children? Children are scared even before someone's told them a scary story. They're scared of things they have no reason to be scared of. It's not, it's not even logical. It's, and I think what happens is children give us a little expose as to what it's like for us as adults who can be equally as irrational in what we are afraid of. Our fears can teach us something about ourselves. 
fears show us what we value and don't want to lose. Comfort, security, identity, reputation, money, health, success. Now there are extreme fears. The medical community has done us a service to label some extreme fears. Let me tell you some of them. Telephonobia is the fear of making or taking phone calls. It's clinically a, a fear. There is the heliophobia. Heliophobia, you typically think of in the narrative of the make-believe stories of vampires. Except this is a legitimate fear for some people. It's the fear of sunlight. There is the uh, ablutophobia. Ablutophobia is what I think most junior high boys struggle with. Any guesses? Fear of That's a good guess. It's the fear of bathing. The fear of bathing. If you've ever been to a summer camp with, uh, with uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers, you often have to do a public service announcement to teach the junior high boys, you have to bathe this week. Not an option. If you want to do it at 3 o'clock in the morning, that's fine, but you have to bathe this week. Here's a crazy one, and uh, forgive me as I try to pronounce this for all these letters strung together. It's, I had to really research this to make sure this is a legitimate fear. It is. Uh, there is the arachibutyrophobia. Arachibutyrophobia. My apologies to the doctors in the room. This is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. I'm not even kidding. That's a real problem. That could be a real problem. Regardless of the object or the extreme of the fear, here's the truth. God's word has something to say about this topic. In fact, there's a lot to say about it. I've referenced this before to you. We're studying the book of Deuteronomy uh, in the month of November and the previous months. But I want to just do this again to remind you. The most repeated command in all of the Bible is... Do not fear. Say it with me. Do not fear. In fact, by some people's count, it's in the Bible 365 times in some form or fashion. Let me give you some examples. Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. God says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. This is right before the Israelites who are running for their lives, are coming up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He is the world's greatest military superpower, and he is coming to annihilate these people. He's changing his mind and letting them go. And they think, we are going to die. And Moses says this to them. Later on, to the next generation of Israelites, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 22, it says, You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Jesus himself, God's son, says in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. A lot more could be said about fear as to studying it, but I want you to understand it, but I want you to see how God has given us his word to help fight it. Open your Bible to Isaiah. We're going to be in two excuse me, three places. Isaiah will be in chapter 12 and then chapter 41. And then we're going to be in Matthew 1 and then in Luke 1. So just so you know, if you want to 
Turn your Bibles ahead of time as to where we're headed. We're going to be in Isaiah, and then we're going to be in Luke 1, and then in Matthew 1. Excuse me, Matthew 1, then Luke 1. Now, I have three sons, age 19, 17, 16. And as those ages reflect, I'm coming up on, relatively speaking, the end of my parental relationship with them as it has been with them being raised in my home. Because the truth is, parenting is more about teaching your children how to live outside of your home than it is inside your home. There are some exceptions to that. Those are noted. But the reality is, a lot of parenting is in preparation for your kid not being with you than your kid is being with you. We think about parenting in this way as regards to the responsibility that we have in parenting. Parenting is about provision and preparation. I am providing for my sons now while my wife and I are, prov- are preparing them for their future. Well, I'm going to let, let you listen in on a conversation principally tonight that I want my sons to learn and have taught them and I want you to learn as well. It comes from the book of Isaiah. Now, you've already turned there, but let me just give you context for Isaiah because you might be like, I have no clue what this book is even about. Isaiah prophesied, he was a prophet, he prophesied to, the, to this nation of Israel that had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. They basically had put their fingers in the ears and did not want to listen to God anymore. Instead of serving him with humility and offering to love their neighbors like they were taught back in Deuteronomy, the nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifice in God's temple in Jerusalem. They committed injustices throughout the nation. Basically, they came to church on Saturday. That would have been their Sabbath. They went to the the temple to offer sacrifices, and then they lived just godless lives the remaining six days of the week. It's no different than we see a lot of people today who seemingly kind of like do their thing at a church once a week, and then the remaining week, they kind of just live godless lives. And so God raised up a man named Isaiah, and he sends him to these people, and he prophesies them specifically and primarily in the city of Jerusalem. The people of Judah had turned their backs on God, had alienated themselves from God, and this needed an announcement, a pronouncement of judgment declarations that God has going to deal with his people. But in the middle of this, I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 12. See, promises of what will come. Look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now, as you're turning to Isaiah 41, let me make some some connections for you. God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, there are consequences to your disobedience. There are going to be consequences. There's going to be punishment. But that punishment is not the final story of your life. And I have a greater story, a longer lasting story because of what I'm going to provide. Now, Isaiah 42. Look at it here. Excuse me, Isaiah 41. If I said chapter 42, I meant 41. Isaiah 41 
Look with me at verse 10. Fear not. Jumping down a few more words. Be not dismayed. You might have different translations, but they essentially say the same thing. Fear not. Be not dismayed. Do not be worried. And then God gives them in this text, in this verse, five reasons not to fear. And I want you to get these five reasons because they're important reasons and they're coming right out of the text. Number one, God says here in Isaiah 41, verse 10, do not fear because of God's presence. Fear not, it says there, for I am with you. As a, uh, as a kid, I would love to hear the stories that my mom would tell of her older brother. Uh, Uncle Mike, as I know him. Uh, Uncle Mike, uh, my mom and her brother had the same mom, but different dads. And what happened uh, with them is that uh, my uncle lived with his mom and his stepdad. And he was older in age by, I'm going to guess, uh, nine to ten years. And this is in the, in the state of Minnesota, specifically Stillwater. And uh, the, the challenge was uh, my mom, at, at one time on the school bus, was being picked on uh, by an older boy than her on the bus. And her older brother found out about it. And he said, what's his name? She said his name. Does he get off at your bus stop? No, he gets off at the next one. Where's that bus stop at? She doesn't know. She, she finds out. She tells him. I will take care of this. He will never pick on you again. This is back before all the craziness. Today you couldn't get away with this. <laughs> Social media and stuff. It used to never happen. This is back, you know, who knows, 1800s or something. That boy got off that bus and was greeted by my uncle, my mom's older brother, who told him who he was and what he intended to do. At which point, that boy began to ran, began to run for his life, which did not help him because my, wife's, my mom's brother, my uncle, caught him and beat him up bad. Now, you'd like to think, oh, that's, that's, that's violent. That's unfortunate. That's, he should have just like told him, don't be mean. That wasn't how it worked. It turns out everybody wasn't worried about each other's feelings back in the day. They actually like physically put, you know, fist to flesh. The point is, once that boy made an association that that older guy went with that younger girl, not only did that boy never pick on my mom again on the bus, but my mom was never scared again on the bus. Because why? Because there's always association. If you pick on me, you will have a problem with my brother. Well, friends, as silly as that story might sound, there is a challenge here for the people of God in verse 10 that he wants to correct. The challenge is by comparison of the other nations, they're not the only people on the planet. They're not the only people who have desires and wishes, who have possessions and, and money and have a desire for ambitious accomplishments. And they are tempted to make wrong 
compromises, wrong allegiances with other countries because they fear those other countries. And God is telling them, you don't have any reason to fear them for I am with you. I've got your back. God's presence is a first reason not to fear. Look at, again, verse 10. The second reason here, what does it say? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. And he says, for I am your God. The second reason not to fear is God's ownership. God's ownership. Now that might be an unfamiliar term, at least by association here, but what is this relationship he's talking about? Where he says, I am your God. It is a a mutually exclusive relationship that only they have with God and only God has with them. There is a unique relationship that God has with his people by relationship. Now, at the risk of being maybe a little provocative, let me teach you something unique about prayer and it's being a conversation with God and people. We encourage anybody and everybody to pray to God. But have you ever considered this? God has not obligated himself to listen to people's prayers except his people. His people he promises to hear and to respond to, though his response might not be what they initially had asked for or when they had asked for it. Sometimes his answer is not what we'd hoped for or not when as soon as we'd expected it. I say that because God has made a promise to his people that is unique to his people. So do I encourage people who do not have a relationship with God to pray to God? Absolutely, because that's how relationships are started, right? Through conversation. If you, I want to know you and you want to know me, we're gonna exchange names. We're gonna talk about where you're from. That's how relationships begin. And so I want people to talk with God. But I want to be clear, and I mean this to anybody who's here, most of which are here tonight as Christians, you have a unique relationship with God that others do not have. There is a possession here in relationship. God is yours, and you are his. There is a uniqueness, a sweetness, an intimacy of that in a way that can provide, by comparison, no other greater relationship. Third reason not to fear God's strength. He says that very clearly there in the scripture. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will strengthen you. Now this this word picture seems odd perhaps for some of you because you're like, I don't know, what does this look like, right? I mean, we're talking like PR in life, a personal record. We're like hitting the weights now with God in the gym. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the fact that God does not intend you to live life under the authority of his word, obeying what is right and good in his eyes on your own strength. One example of this is in Colossians chapter one. The the context is Paul is talking to the church in Colossae. He wants to be with these Christians. He cannot. And he's describing his own ministry in Colossians chapter one about how he is laboring and striving. He says that I might present every man mature in Christ. I'm teaching, admonishing. And he says, I labor. So he's talking about the hard work of ministry. I labor. He says, according to the spirit that works within me. In other words, Paul understood something that Isaiah understood. He's telling his people, which is God's people are strengthened by God's strength. I will strengthen you. You ever come across a challenging relationship, a challenging circumstance, perhaps a physically demanding 
opportunity, and you're like, God, I just cannot do this. That's not a bad place to be. Because in that admission is the acceptance and the requirement for you to ask God for help. I cannot overcome this without you stepping in and helping me. God will strengthen you. The fourth reason not to fear is God's help. Look at what he says there. I will help you. This is a, a confident expression of God's promised relationship. It goes back to his ownership that I am your God. I will help you. It isn't as if you have to kind of like knock on the door of heaven and you hope he's going to answer. The light is on. There looks like there's activity in heaven. You see things happening in other people's lives. You heard about people testifying of ancient prayer, what they're doing, but you're kind of wondering, will God listen to you? Will he care about you? He says here, he will. A promise for his people. He will help. And then fifth reason not to fear is God's character. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, the reason I've chosen this word character is because I think it kind of brings together what's happening in the last part of verse 10 here. I will uphold you. So speaking about his strength, his right hand is speaking about his relationship but he says, by my righteous right hand. It's just a modifier. The character of God, not only his power, not only his wisdom, but also his goodness. God didn't just have the power to help his people. He didn't just have the wisdom to know how to help his people. He has the goodness and the relationship that he will indeed hope help his people because of his character. He is indeed a loving God. Now that might sound nice and possibly even outdated or impressive but inapplicable to you, national for Israel but not individual for you today as a Christian. Well, that takes us to the third part of what I want us to learn. I want to show you how Jesus' first coming ultimately illustrated this solution. Throw with me to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. This is the story of Christmas. Celebration of Christ, the arrival of the king, and a conversation that's going to be had with his stepdad named Joseph. Follow along with me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that means like he's, she's, they're engaged to get married, before they came together, so before they had sex, she was found to be with child. She's pregnant. From the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now let me just explain what's happening right now because this is a bit lost culturally. In that day and age, if you were engaged, it was similar to basically being married. That's why you have this term of this idea of divorce. So they're committed to one another. They've not yet ceremonially been married, but they're committed to one another, and she is now pregnant. And he does not want her to be treated scornfully by those in society, which she would have been, to put it mildly, and so he basically is like, hey, we're going to end the relationship quietly so no one has to know what happened. He's an honorable guy. He's not mad, not responding in anger. Look what happens here. Verse 20. 
As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. First time in 450 years this has happened. Saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do not fear. To do what? To take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then here comes a testimony of Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, from Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, friends, let's just stop right now. I just got finished reading to you Isaiah. And you're like, okay, that's significant. I think if I'm living back in that time, if I'm like the people of Israel and I'm going up against some Philistines, but I'm living in Miami, 2019, I don't feel like God is with me like he was with them. Friends, by Jesus coming, his very name itself, Emmanuel, is saying he is with us. He came to be with us, to be like us, to live obediently like none of us so that he might be a replacement for us so that we might be with him for an eternity for all those who believe in him. The very name itself, Emmanuel, means God with us. His very name is the fulfillment of the prophecy, a very promise given that has now been made and kept. Joseph had a response, and the angel says to him, do not fear. Why? Because of who Jesus was. But because of what Jesus had come to do, look at it in verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Boy, this is incredibly encouraging, correcting, and confronting. Encouraging because God cares. God cares. Comforting because we're not left to ourselves to fix our humanity's problems. Correcting, because it turns out our greatest problem is not what we often think it is in society. Our greatest problem is not our economic models, not our political theories, not our politicians and our policies, not our family models, not our interest in hobbies or interest or our ability to handle money, our greatest problem, that is the explanation of all our other problems, is sin. God came to address that, and addressing that, everything else gets addressed. He came to save his people from sins. Now, as if that's not remarkable, calling upon Isaiah, go to Luke. So that was the conversation with Jesus' stepdad. Now, let's hear how this goes for Jesus' mom. Luke chapter 1. This is a little bit of a longer reading, but trust me, it is worth it. It's exciting to read. Luke chapter 1. Oh, let's go verse 26. Let's, let's, let's get, let's settle into this text here because it's about to come at us again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man, we've already met him, whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And he came to her, this, this angel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over all the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Verse 35, the angel said, answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. We looked at that story last week. And in the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Keep going, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary has a worship service. Verse 46, here's the song. Mary said, and track with it, because this is so rich. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, there's his strength, has done great things for me, there's his relationship, and holy is his name, there's his character, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Friends, it began with the angel telling Mary, do not fear. It ends with Mary praising the God for a lack of fear, except for a fear of God. We put off the fear of man, we put off the fear of the future, and we put on a fear of God. We put on a confident, resolved, a confident reminder that our God has us, our God cares for us, our God provides for us, our God does not leave us nor abandon us. Let me, let me ask you to do this drill. And think about this not just now but in the future. It's an important drill. It's a difficult drill, but it's worth going through. 
take your fear, your fears. L- let's, let's grab a hold of one, okay? Let's, let's grab a hold of one. Let's, let's make it domesticated to be polite. Let's say uh, your fear is that if you wore what you wanted to wear on Friday night out with your friends that they might judge you. Okay, so let's, let's go through that. So you wear what you want to wear, you show up wearing that, and, and they judge you. They do, they judge you. That's what you feared came to pass, they judge you. Um, at the other side of that judgment, um, they're going to have to make a decision. Uh, do they want to invite you again because of what you wore? Because they didn't like it, they didn't approve of it, whatever. Uh, and they're maybe going to treat you differently because of that, because of what you wore. And you're going to have to make a decision next time you get invited. If you do get invited, should you go out with them again? And, and you might lose that friendship because, after all, they don't find you to be as like them as they thought you were. So what you thought was going to be or had been some friendships turned out not to be because of something like the fact that you feared. Push pause on that. Let's go to something a little bit more drastic. You're married. You're married. Your spouse dies. You're a widow. You're married. Your spouse is unfaithful to you. You now feel like a relational widow. Perhaps if you're now divorced. Your fear has got your heart wrapped up in that possible future. You know of other people that this has happened to. Here's what I'm wanting you to realize often happens with our fear. When you run this drill, here's what this drill often reflects in your thinking and in my thinking. That we think atheistically in the future. We think like people who don't believe there's a future with a God in it. In the future, there's problems. In the future, there's rejection. In the future, there's loneliness. In the future, there's poverty. In the future, there's whatever the fear is without God. These people, the people of Israel, had had great promises made to them for century after century, and then God said nothing for 450 years. That's why it's so remarkable, probably lost on most of you, when in the beginning of Matthew it says an angel appeared. Angels did not appear. And I was like, oh, your angel came to you? Yeah, angels came to me. No, no angels appeared. Friends, what I want you to see in the story of the incarnation is what Mary is saying. God is in that future that you do not yet know. He is there. If your imagination is going to run wild, can I ask you to do yourself this favor as an act of faith in God? Can I ask you to tie your imagination in that future to a God who is present in that future just like he's present right now in your life and has been present in the past? The problem with our fears is it often indicates and reflects we think about a future without God and that does not exist. And Mary is saying here that this is a God who has shown such great things from generation to generation. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has shown his strength with his arm. Friends, I'm asking you to go to the word to find your confidence and your courage, not in your personality, 
not in the fact that you're batting pretty well, that you're pretty intelligent, and not in the fact that you can kind of create for yourself walls of security. You cannot do that. No one in this room makes himself be a good God. Only God can do that. Why do some people fear it today? Because life looks like it's not going well. I mean, think about it. In late modernity, you, you have social change aided and abetted by the breakdown of the family. You have the erosion of social cohesion. You have the volatility and the carnality of social and digital media. Even now, various forms of transhumanism. You have the confusion of human beings and machines. You have human beings and other creatures. You have a society that's less clear about what it even means to be human. Animals. What does it mean to be male or female? All of this can tempt us to have great fear. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So let's put it on the ground for you this coming week. When you go home for Christmas and your family asks you if you're married yet, or at least you're dating, and you're worried about, you're fearful of what they're going to think of you based on that answer, don't fear. Don't fear. When you are maybe feeling like uh, your family is not the trigger, and says, this coming Friday night, others are going out on dates and you are not, you've not been, asked, not been asked out on a date, or you maybe don't want to ask somebody else on a date because you fear being rejected, don't fear. When you, get, when you go to your Christmas's work party and you're all supposed to bring a gift and people have got some amazing gifts they're opening and they're $50 headphones and yours cost $15 but only because you use a 20% off at Bed Bath & Beyond. You worry about people judging you because your gift looks less than theirs. But that's all your budget could afford unless you want to live in a world of debt to make everybody else happy with you. Don't fear. Don't worry what other people think of you. Know as a child of God what God thinks of you. And that's the invitation tonight, friends. If you do not have that confidence of who you are in Christ, what it means to be a child of God, then I'm calling you, I'm inviting you to understand the freedom that's found in him. To no longer have to fear. Know what other people think, but also God himself. In the sense of his wrath, by surrendering your life to Christ and asking him to forgive you of your sins and ask him to be the Lord of your life. Here's the truth. The truth is hearing is not the same thing as believing. I know a lot of very intelligent people who could have taught tonight's lesson better than I did. I know of one professor at a seminary in a part of the country that's ravaged by earthquakes. He went through an earthquake it so scared him, he couldn't imagine doing it again, and if fear overwhelmed him, he had to leave the city and move to another spot. Another spot. I know people who have the Bible memorized, but don't believe it. Because hearing is not the same thing as believing. Statistically, you're safer in an airplane than you are a car. But I know people who ride in cars all the time but are scared to death to get in an airplane. Because while the statistics support that, they don't really surrender to those statistics because they're overwhelmed by their fears. We like to give away books here at Grace Church. Two references I'll have to give to you 
These are for free. You can just come and see them. They're up here on the front uh, pew afterwards. It's a book called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. I highly recommend it. Could be something you start off your new year reading. And if that seems ominous to you, it's really not. He's a great, easy writer to read. That has been put, in, put into a devotional titled 31 Days Towards Trusting God. And uh, maybe that's something you begin on January 1st to start off your new year with trusting God and not having to fear everybody else. Those are there for free as a resource for you. All of you who are Jesus' disciples, you can rest. God has made a promise to his people that he will not break it. He will keep it. Jesus said himself in the Great Commission, I am present with you to the end of the age. You don't have to fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise that your word has delivered to us tonight. God, we now pray for the faith to believe it. God, I pray for any one person here tonight. I trust God because of how common a temptation fear is. It is true for a number of people that are perhaps even unknowingly until tonight being overwhelmed by fear. God, would your word be like a fan that blows out the fog of confusion? Would it be like a light that shines into the darkness where they've not been seeing clearly? God, would your word about who you are be like an invitation that they, rep that they reply to and respond to and, and understand that you are a God who is strong, who is present, who is capable, who is good and cares for your people. And that when they have that relationship with you, that all the fears begin to subside. God, it is a fallen and broken world. We know that. Crime is still present no matter whether or not we fear it. Broken lives are still there. People still respond sinfully even if we do not. But God, in a future of which we do not know, what we do know is that you are present. You care for your people. You love your people. You will always be with your people. And you will direct them in the affairs of their life. God, I pray, would we be a people of faith not fear, of trust, not worry. So we'd not only rest well, but we would celebrate well what it means to be in Christ. From a baby in a manger to a crucified Savior, resurrected from the grave, He is our King. In His name we pray.